0: Good morning, Lord, and uh, we just want to welcome you here this morning, and we're truly thankful that we have a building to meet in, that we can get together, as uh, there's nothing more encouraging than being with fellow believers, and at same similar stages of life or otherwise, we're just uh, very thankful for that, God, and uh, we're thankful also for what beautiful weather and a great morning that we can Wake up, see amazing colors, and be reminded of how amazing you are, God, and that you're in charge of creation, and you're in charge of everything. And we want to lift up Andrew this morning and the message that uh, he's prepared this week, and just pray, God, again, that he's open to you to lead and to deliver the message that you want us to hear. And in return, God, I pray that we can also set aside all the different things that would distract us from our relationship with you, And that our hearts and minds are open to hear what you want us to say, as we can all take it a little bit differently, but it's amazing how your scripture, though written so long ago, applies to us here and now, and uh, especially with the different things that we're dealing with. And um, thank you, God, that we're not by ourselves, uh, that you're always with us, but we have the church family around us too. again, we welcome you to our service, Lord, and we look forward to learning more about you, your character, and and what what the Bible has to say. Amen. All right,
1: why don't we stand and read Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, so that he might touch them. But the disciples, they rebuked him. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said, to them, permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Please be seated. Well, I'm sure none of you will remember this, because I just remembered myself on Thursday, that this weekend represents the completion of eight years in ministry at Genesis House. Did you know it was eight years today we started our first service? So we're actually heading into our ninth year uh, this Sunday. And so what a cool thing to remember and a cool thing to praise God for. Uh, First of all, for his faithfulness to us, because we've gone through some, of course, tough times, because we start off church planning, you go from scratch, and you you trust him with everything from your finances to who's going to commit, and It's been a wonderful journey, but I'm also grateful to you for your faithfulness to our church as well and how you've uh, adopted the vision that we've had right from the get-go. And like any uh, line of work um, and experiences in life, there's highs and lows. Well, this past week, I had one of the most memorable and heart-moving experiences in the eight years of my ministry. Uh, My neighbor's um, little girl uh, wanted to talk to me. And so I met her and her mother outside on a Monday night, and I said, hey, like, what's going on? And I can't share the details of everything because it's private, but it was really awesome. This little eight-year-old girl, just turned eight actually on Thursday, the little 8 year girl started asking me questions surrounding God and who he is and how he works in her life. And just to see the sincerity in her face and hear it in her voice, and just even that, that she trusted that he existed and wanted my input into her life about to help her connect with the God of the universe was absolutely moving. I didn't know how to process it in the moment, but the next day I cried. my <laughs> office, Just cried to God, thanking him for that experience. So I thought before we start this new sermon series next week, why not preach on children and their... Welcoming by the Lord into the kingdom of heaven. I never realized how important the context was surrounding these verses. It wasn't until this week in my studies that I saw something new. You see, sandwiched between Jesus saying, do not forbid children to come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, is two stories of self-righteous people who believed they had done enough to earn God's favor and make it to the kingdom of heaven. We have the Pharisees in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, who are arguing with Jesus about what it is to uh, obey the law in terms of divorce and remarriage. And we know the Pharisees' reputation as the religious leaders. They're ones who are self-righteous and think that they're good with God because of their obedience to the law, so much so that they've added extra laws to the Mosaic law to ensure that they're practicing the law laws called the traditions of men on the other side we have the rich wrong ruler which is so often titled this is about a rich man who comes to to jesus to basically say hey what do i need to do to inherit eternal life and they go through the law of moses and he thinks he's good because he's obeyed all these commands and jesus raises the ante on him and says uh-uh, you've missed something important So, what's really cool here is we have two two examples in between this this passage about how to receive the kingdom like a child. How to get into the kingdom is like to to be like a child, a sandwich between self righteous, religious people who think that they're good enough for God the way they stand in their own morality. That's really cool when you think about the context, considering what Jesus is about to say to us here. So, let's look at verse 13. It says, "And they were bringing children to him, so that he might touch them." But the disciples rebuked them. The first thing I want to point out here is that um, is the who exactly was being brought to the children, or being brought to Jesus? I should say, you know, people who were sick would be brought to Jesus. People who were demon possessed would be brought to Jesus. People who were paralyzed would be brought to Jesus. And that's that was true in many of the stories. But here we have children being brought to him. Well, Mark doesn't tell us how old these children were, but we can gain an understanding of what the age might have been like when we understand the Greek word. So the Greek word is predominantly used to describe infants, infants and babies. This is the case of John the Baptist in Luke 1.59. Um, it says there that it happened on the eighth day that they brought John to be circumcised. And they use the word child in there, um, Actually, they came to circumcise the child, it says. And so the same word, uh, child, there is used as children here. And we see here John the Baptist being eight days old. But the Greek word can also encompass the age of those who are older than infants and babies, such as toddlers, to use our vernacular, and even a bit older than toddlers as well. We see this in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. You remember when King Herod was uh, duped by the wise men when he was looking to come and supposedly worship the Messiah, when he actually wanted to kill Jesus, he went out into the land and he slew all the male children two years old and under in Bethlehem to try to make sure Jesus was, was in amongst those, those little boys. Well, the same word for children there is again, um, the same great word here, and these children were two years old. And one more place, Matthew eleven sixteen, 16, Jesus is saying, to what can I compare this generation? And he says they're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. So, again, can toddlers call out? Yeah, they can. But probably in this context, um, because it's the age of language, they're probably older than two years old. They're probably maybe four, five, six, seven years old. So, again, we can see the kind of children then that are being brought to Jesus. Now, what's important for us here is not really to determine so much only the age, but to remember why the parents are bringing to them in the first place. It says that they were bringing them to Jesus so that he may touch them. Now, this is further defined in verse 16, okay? Further, in verse 16, it says, he took them in his arms, and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And Matthew's account is very helpful, too. He adds one other component in chapter 19. He says he was actually praying for them as well. So picture the scene now. Uh, Jesus is sitting there. The parents are bringing their children. And when they come to him, he embraces them in his arms. He prays for them, he puts his hands on them, and he provides a blessing over them. Now, this is really cool because, again, remember, many people would bring people to Jesus all the time for things like such as healing and for uh, to be taught and things like that. But the parents here want a blessing over their lives. Now, everything I read and studied said that it was common in Jewish uh, culture for parents of Jewish faith to bring children to prominent Jewish rabbis and synagogue leaders in order for blessings to be given and of course it, it makes sense we do it in our culture too it's it's the belief that someone with a spiritual influence can sort of impart god's favor over someone's life it's a way of trying to ins- ensure soul care you know for their children's future both in this life for eternity but this is amazing now because instead of going to the local synagogue leaders or the rabbis which they may have done in the past now they're choosing Jesus choosing Jesus. Perhaps they'd seen the miracles he'd done, heard about his teaching, and even embraced him to be the Messiah. Who better than to receive God's favor from than him? Now, as a North American outsider uh, looking in, this is a beautiful picture. An incredible picture as a North American looking into this. You think, this is awesome, Jesus embracing children. Well, not to the disciples. Not to the disciples. Look at what they say when they see this going on. They were bringing children to him so that he may touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now the them here is best understood as the parents. The parents were being rebuked by the disciples. He wasn't rebuking Jesus yet. They were rebuking the parents for bringing them to him. Now, why they were rebuking him, we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But there's been a couple suggestions, and you might have some of your own. But some think that within Jewish society, uh, there was a low view of children because they couldn't sort of do anything for God. And in 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 an environment and culture where it was a a works-based righteousness, children were seen as of no value. Others maybe think that Jesus was just busy. The disciples thought, you know what? Our teacher has bigger fish to fry than dealing with kids. I mean, he's got demons to cast out and healings to do and teaching to go on in the synagogues and on the streets. Why would, I deal, why would he want to deal with trivial things such as little children and having them just have their hands laid on their heads? Whatever the case was, the disciples were about to get a rebuke of their own. And we pick this up in 14. He says, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, this word indignant, this word indignant doesn't occur very often in the New Testament. Not at all. And it means to be angry or to be pained. Now, this is a really important church. How many times can you think of Jesus ever being angry, angered in, the, in the, all of the stories you know in the three Gospels? Think of all the thousands upon thousands of people he saw, conversations he had, things he encountered. How many times was he actually angered? All I could think of, really, was the flipping of the tables in the temple. You understand how important this is? How he views children? He's at the place where he's flipping tables in terms of his aggression because they're not allowing children to be in his presence and to receive the blessing that he wanted to bestow upon them. This is really, really, this really, like, struck me, church. Because he's saying, listen, disciples, I mean, you got a lot of learning to do with you here, guys. Like, you think these children are outside of God's kingdom? Let me tell you, these children actually belong to the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to these. Now, such as these is an important phrase here. He wasn't saying this. The children of God only belongs to these Jewish boys and girls in this moment for this particular time. It wasn't just such as these was not defining them just to these particular children. Such as these was to define children by the category of who they were. As opposed to adults, the kingdom of God belongs to children categorically. Now, I want to make two observations about this, and I think are really important, church. First, notice that there's no conditions... No conditions required for the kingdom of God to belong to children. No conditions. It wasn't conditioned on the faith of the parents. So watch this. If you have faithful God-following parents, I will bless your children. The kingdom of God belongs to them. But if you have unfaithful parents, they don't. This is important, church. They were welcomed by all. This, like For me, who loves apologetics and debating the Christian faith, people say, well, how fair is it for God to, like, You know, when when Muslims and, and, uh, you know, people of different religions sort of have children that believe different things than we do. Well, this is the answer. Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Those children are welcomed by the Lord. But notice it's not also conditioned upon any rite or ritual or sacrament. I mean, in the Jewish faith, circumcision, right? Circumcision. He doesn't say, only if your children are circumcised do they belong to me. That was an issue between them and the parents. They, whether they were or weren't didn't change whether Jesus would accept these children or not. But key for us, I think, is baptism. Key for us is baptism. You know, many believe in, their, in, the, in the sort of w- religions of the world that the ritual of baptism guarantees children's entry into the kingdom of God. That is the way that you're forgiven of sin. That is the way to promise eternal life. And that's why they do it as young as possible. Jesus says, even without baptism, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. There's no conditions. But the second thing I want to point out, though, is how different Jesus' message was to the rest of humanity. Can you think of anywhere outside of children that Jesus said, All of you, the kingdom of, uh, you know, the kingdom of God belongs to you? It's available to you, but it doesn't belong to you. You know the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1, in verse 14? Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's an important phrase, considering our context. The kingdom of God's at hand repent and believe in the gospel not I'm here to preach the gospel and the kingdom of God belongs to you he says repent and then you can get in chapter 2 a paralytic comes to Jesus lowered through the roof you know the story well they're all expecting physical hearing and the first thing Jesus says he says your sins are forgiven And the place goes in an uproar what's this got to do with forgiveness of sins and jesus says everything that's what i came for healings are secondary they point to the fact that i'm the one that can forgive sins but you need spiritual cleansing you need spiritual healing that is what i'm here for so why did jesus have two different standards one for children and one like of that kind of age and one for adults and people like you and I. But well, before I answer this, I just wanna take a side tangent for one second and address one important issue in the church. Because the longer I've been a pastor, the longer I've been a dad, the more I've been, longer I've been a husband and I've sort of gotten to know people's lives, I've realized that things like miscarriages and, and uh, infertility and things like that have happened way more than I ever thought could imagine. In fact, I'm at the place now where I virtually know nobody, hardly anybody who's never experienced the loss of a child through a miscarriage or a stillborn or or maybe even died at a few weeks old. I just want to speak to your heart right now for a moment because you might have questions like, what happens to that child? Where do they go? Does God accept them and things like this? Well, man, I hope these words provide comfort to you. He says the kingdom of god belongs to such of these your children are in the presence of the lord and you will see them one day and the one man who understood this really well was king david and i preached on him last week but let me show you this incredible verse in second samuel remember david took bathsheba as a wife but the way he did it was wrong she was already married, and he wanted her, so he had, to, he had a plan to have her husband killed. Then he impregnated her and had a baby out of wedlock and through adultery. And so the baby was going to be born, but God said to David, this child basically was never meant to be born, and as your punishment, I will take this, ch- this boy's life. And David fasted for a week, hoping that, David, that God would relent. But look at this, after the baby was taken, look at David's words. Oh, his attendants come to him and say, why aren't you fasting anymore now that your baby's gone? He says, why should I fast, David says. Am I able to bring him back at this point? I will go to him, but he cannot return to me. Again, back to the faithfulness of the parents being conditioned about about children entering the kingdom. David and Bathsheba committed a sin. The child was a victim in that that situation. David says, one day I will go to him because David knew he was going to one day be with the Lord. And he knew he'd meet his child there. And so I just want to encourage you with these words, as painful as those moments have been, that one day you will stand and put your arms around your children once again. So why did Jesus have sort of two different standards, one for adults and one for like, children that are of this age category? Well, it wasn't that Jesus thought that um, children wouldn't sin against him one day as they grew up. It was simply this, that God understood that even if they made poor decisions, they weren't morally accountable or responsible to the same degree as adults. Let me say that again. God had two different standards in terms of moral accountability as compared to adults. And it all had to do with the psychological development of a child. But it's more specifically to their ability to reason and understand the difference between right or wrong or good or evil. I want to give you two scriptures to illustrate this point. And I'm not making this up. The first one is um, actually in Deuteronomy 139. Let me give you the precursor here. Israel is about to enter the land, and God has made it clear to Moses who's going into the Canaan and who's not. He says the forefathers for all their rebellion and sin against them are not allowed to enter Canaan except for Joshua and Caleb. But then he says this. Also, your infants, who you thought would die on the way, and your children, who as yet do not know good from evil, will go there. I will give them the land, and they will possess it. Why did the Lord allow the children and infants into the land, but would not allow the the the, the sort of the forefathers? Because of their knowledge of good and evil. He understood that they were they were. Like they weren't responsible to God for the actions that had happened they didn't have the ability to reason to understand com- cause and effect and comprehend what was going on there's another one in Jonah four eleven in Jonah remember Jonah he sent to Nineveh to preach and just so you know Nineveh's modern day I think Mosul in Iraq and uh, he goes to Nineveh to preach and He's going to warn the, the whole nation that they're going to be, or the whole city, they're going to get smote by God if they don't turn around and repent. The king listens and calls a massive fast, and they put sackcloth on and dust over their heads, and God relents from uh, bringing calamity upon them. Jonah is in a huff. He's mad that God is so gracious to these people. He wanted them dead. So what does Jonah do? He goes, he sits on the hill overlooking the city, and a plant grows, in front of him and provides him heat for the shade or shade for the heat I should say and he loves it he's very he's very ecstatic about this plant that provides him this shade because he's so grumpy what happened down in Nineveh the next morning he wakes up and God causes the plant to die and Jonah's in a huff again and he's mad and so God comes to him and says this regarding regarding the plant he goes, should I not be more concerned about Nineveh than this plant, <laughs> this enormous city? There are more than 120,000 people in it who do not know right from wrong. Now, do you know why that's important, church? When, God, when Jonah preached the message through, through, um, through Nineveh, the king called a fast, and look what the king says. He says, the people and animals... We should be covered with sackcloth let everyone call urgently on God let them give up their evil ways and their violence who knows God yet may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish the men who were uh, older and the women who were older knew what they had done they recognized they were evil they were violent people but God says to Jonah there's also people in that city that don't know right from wrong that's clearly not the king and the adults in the community. So again, there's distinctions in reasonability in, be, in being accountable to God for moral actions. And so, God, by His grace, God by His grace, does not hold children accountable for matters they do not fully comprehend. Does that mean then that uh, there is an age of an accountability? Really good, really fun conversation to have in a Bible study. And uh, I'm not going to have it totally here with you right now. But let me just say this. I, there is no scripture that I can think of that really defines this, like, very strongly, the age of accountability. So I think I would suggest that what God expect or what God does in this, is that he determines in each individual's lives when he thinks that child is accountable. If it's a matter of reason and a matter of understanding who he is, then he is able to determine when that age is. But here's the key as parents. Because we know at some point in their lives there's going to be a transition from being under God's grace and and the kingdom belonging to one day, they're not, it's our responsibility to train them up in the way they should go. Proverbs 22.6, right? Train up a child in the way they should go or in the ways of God. And when they're older, they will not depart from it. So we train them knowing that one day there's gonna be a transition where God says, yes, the kingdom of God no longer belongs to you. You have to make a decision for me on your own. And again, I I would love to be able to say it's this age and, and everything, but I can't. Maybe you have some insight into that. But again, the point here is that children at a younger age are totally dependent on the grace of God because they have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer. And this is so important in the context, church. The Pharisees and their rich wrong ruler, they think, I have done enough in obedience to the law to get into the kingdom of God. And then Jesus makes this statement in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What does it mean? then, to enter the kingdom of God like a child? What's a child had to offer under the age of reason and moral accountability? What's an infant or a toddler have to offer God? In service? In works? Nothing. They're totally dependable upon him. They're banking on Jesus' merits alone. They have nothing to offer, nothing to prove they're totally helpless. And that's what he's saying in the midst of these self-righteous people. Unless you come to God totally relying on his grace, recognizing that you have nothing to offer him, nothing to prove, you're totally helpless and fully dependent on him, you cannot enter the kingdom. And you know what, church? There's so many examples in the Bible of this, but let me give you two, just two, the thief on the cross, right? In Luke 23, in the beginning when they're crucified, one man is, is uh, actually both criminals are cursing him and calling out names on Jesus, mocking him. As the hours progress, one guy, one thief starts to change his attitude towards, towards God. And as the other thief continues, the one guy who starts to change says, what are you doing mocking this guy? He's done nothing wrong. We are suffering, suffering justly. And he turns to Jesus and says, would you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. You talk about nothing to offer God. You are literally within one hour, two hours of your death. You are physically attached to a wooden beam with nails to your hands and your ankles. What are you going to do for God in service? Absolutely nothing, in fact, less than probably an infant. At least the infant can move around. And God says, You're welcome into the kingdom because He banked on the merits of Jesus Christ. He banked on the merits of Jesus Christ and His grace to Him. But He repented. He recognized that He'd sinned against God and only Christ could deal with that sin. How about the prostitute in Luke 7? prostitute in Luke 7, a powerful story of uh, repentance. This woman comes in to a Pharisee's home. I mean, you want to talk about like putting yourself out there. She walks into the religious leaders' houses. They wouldn't even associate with her or have anything to do with her. And she walks into evil territory, into the lion's den to find Jesus. And listen to this. She was defined as a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar full of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet and her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. What has she got to offer God as a a prostitute for a lifestyle? How is she going to earn her way into the kingdom? She basically comes before her like an infant with nothing to offer, nothing to prove, helpless, fully dependent on him, and all of her actions show that she's broken to the core. You know, Corinthians says that the woman's hair is her glory. She's using her hair to wipe his feet and get the dirt off of it. This is an important message for us, church. There might be some of us in here who are self, more on the self-righteous side. You think, well, we have done enough to earn God's favor to be forgiven by Him. Well, may this be a message to you. Have you ever fallen at the feet of Christ? Have you ever come to Him like a child, recognizing you have nothing to offer, nothing to prove, that you're totally helpless and you're just banking on His merits of forgiveness? Or perhaps you're a self-condemner and you think you've done nothing good enough to earn god's favor that's actually where god wants you to be to recognize that but again whether you're on that side or not it's about jesus again and your dependence on him i think this is an important message i think for you kids you kids in here today I uh, don't know where God sees many of you in terms of where you stand with the Lord. I don't know if he sees you as still having the kingdom belonging to you. I don't know if he sees you as maybe being at the age of accountability now. But here's what we do know. At some point, he wants you to make a decision for him. He'll want you to come clean with your sin and recognize that he's the only one that can take care of it for you. So if this is the first time you've understood that today, may I encourage you children to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, knowing that he's the one that died for your sin and the only one that can take care of it for you. So what did we learn from today's message? There's a ton of of, uh, lessons I could have put down, but I just made it simple, just made it simple and only put two. Since the kingdom of heaven unconditionally belongs to children, rituals such as circumcision, baptism, and other parental covenants are not necessary for them to obtain eternal life. If you want to do these things as a way of honoring the Lord, fine. But don't think that they're necessary for forgiveness of sin to be granted or eternal life to be given. Jesus makes it clear here that you enter into you have that relationship purely on the merits of his grace towards you. Number two, to receive the king like a child is to come to Jesus recognizing we have nothing to offer him, being fully dependent on his grace towards us. Again, that's not the context of the rich wrong ruler. That's not the context of the Pharisees. It may not, that might not be the context of some of us in here today. But again, to receive the kingdom like a child is to be spiritually and morally bankrupt in front of him and just receive his kindness towards you. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving me that experience last week that prompted this sermon. Thank you for uh, the message of the cross and that your grace is abounding towards us regardless of what age we are. Thank you that you've provided a way, and that is through the blood and the sacrifice you made for us. I pray, Lord, for the kids in this church. I pray, Lord, that as they grow older and they move from age of sort of dependency to age of decision, that they will uh, choose to honor you and serve you with their lives. Give us the wisdom as parents to raise them in ways that will set the table for them to love you the most and to choose your path. For those of us who maybe haven't made a decision for you yet as adults that we would learn from from this passage and that we would um, understand God that you've provided the way for us and there's nothing we have to prove or offer you Lord to be saved again like the sacrifice you made is uh, something that we could never even comprehend and yet you made it for us so we just uh, thank you Lord for this time and for how much you love us